Occasionally in life, we come to the point where we just can't be bothered trying to grapple with the things of God anymore. I don't know if you've ever been there. And you come to a time that you just, you're too tired. Things just seem too technical, too much, too theological. And you, you just, you, you're, too, you're too tired to kind of keep grappling with the things of God. Now, I'm not talking about those times in life where for good reason, you're thoroughly exhausted. So if you're in the middle of labor and child's coming out, and you're kind of going, I'm too tired to grapple with the things of God. I can kind of understand, although at that point you might want to be crying out to him saying, help this go quickly, right? Um, if you've got a newborn child, you, not many of you will have experienced the sleeplessness that comes from having newborn children in your house. Everyone's like, oh, they're so cute and cuddly. All they do is cry and poo and like scream. And, and it's really, really tiring in those early months. And there are times when, when you're going through that, that I think, well, you know, it's understandable that we're not thinking of, of growing, of, of knowing more of God. We're just like, man, I just need to get through. But there can be a time in life when we kind of get comfortably numb to the things of God. No thirst to know more. No desire to actually be changed by God's Word, matured and deepened. No desire for the riches of God's word, nor the motivation to live much of it out. Have you ever been in that position? Are you there now? Kind of feeling comfortably numb. Maybe you've been invited here tonight by someone else, and you're like, well, I kind of didn't really want to come, but here I am, and you know, I'll just, whatever. Maybe you're checking out the things of God, but you're not really that into it and or maybe you you've been a christian your whole life you've been involved in church you've been reading the bible and this idea of maturity is kind of well it's, it's something that was what i was in the past it's an idea that's been and gone maybe you'd not say it that way but practically that's what's happened maybe for some of us this idea of christian maturity seems kind of dry and intellectual, too theological, too fanatical. What I want to show you tonight is that maturity is intensely practical. Maturity is intensely practical. For many of us, though, we, we look at it and we go, nah, it's, it's just too dry. You ever had someone come up to you and say, look, don't get, don't get all theological on me right now? You're like, and we can think that this understanding of God, well, it's just not for us. So we don't pursue it, we settle for kind of cruising along without being challenged, without being changed by the Word of God. But for others of us, we're up the other end of the spectrum. We can be incredibly theological. We kind of love reading people that speak in these and thys. We kind of love getting into the classics of, of, of all that's been said. We can list the fruit of the Spirit, we can outline a clear doctrine of the Trinity because we've got it kind of clearly pictured in our heads. We can even recount the position of the reformers, all their different nuances, what Zwingli and Calvin used to say and what they said. And you might even have on your shoulder a tattoo of something in Hebrew or maybe Latin. You know, Semper Reformata, solo, Soli Deo Gloria. Right? And some of you, you know what that means. I'm talking to you. Sometimes... All of that theological knowledge about God just doesn't seem to break through into a changed personal practice. It can lead to like an arrogance, a refusal to actually engage and really just fight, kind of throw theological fists at others, but never actually let the Word of God mold or shape you. Never applying it, never letting it change our lives. The writer of Hebrews tells us that all theology, all Christian maturity is intensely practical. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food, says the writer, is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Look carefully what he's saying. The mature are those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. The mature person knows what right living is. They know what good is. They know what evil is. 
Their senses have been trained and continue to be trained by the Word of God, by the knowledge of God. That's what theological is, it's a study of God. Because all theology is practical. All knowledge of God has implications for how we live, if He is the King who made you. Surely we must live in relationship to that. If He's the only way to be saved, then surely we must live a life that is shaped that way. How we live, how we speak, what we do with our body, our minds, our money, our resources, our diaries, our energy, our relationships, our lives, our futures, all of that needs to flow out of our maturity, our knowledge of this God who has made us. The mature is the one who has understood who Jesus is and keeps applying that to their lives. He is their King. They come to Him as their high priest. That's what the writer of Hebrews has just been explaining around the identity of Jesus to the recipients of this letter, reminding them that this one who was the promised king, the Messiah, is also the the high priest who has gone behind the temple curtain, brought us into the presence of God. We have access to God through Him. But it seems like some of the recipients of this letter had a tendency to want to go back to their kind of old way of life. Probably, given the context of this letter, the comfort of the old Jewish patterns and rituals, kind of ceremonial washings and laying on of hands that were there and talking about the things of faith, they'd seen something of Jesus that the writer had been explaining, but it had just seemed too much, too theological, too kind of fundamentalist, too hard, don't get all extreme on me, you know, man, chill out. So the author lovingly lays before these people two things, the reality of their state and the motivation to change. It's kind of where we're going tonight. We're going to see the reality of their state and the motivation to change. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. We have a great deal to say about this. I take it that this is the Jesus' king and high priest that he's just been talking about throughout the letter so far. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain. Now, I love it when Bible writers kind of go, man, this stuff's hard. Right? The guy who's writing it saying, it's difficult to explain, you're kind of like, okay, whew, it's all right, I'm kind of off the hook. He's even saying it's hard to explain, except for what he says next. It's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Whew. Although by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. The reality of their state here is that they've become lazy, literally dull of hearing. The kind of warnings that had come through already today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Keep coming back to the word that was spoken to you. He's saying you've become lazy in your hearing. You're not letting what has been said impact your life. You are comfortably numb. When it comes to maturing as followers of Jesus, they are just comfortably numb. They should have been teachers. Did you notice that? I want to pause here for a second and kind of understand this little side alley. There's an expectation here in this passage that as every Christian matures, as every Christian grows, they teach one another. They lead others by example and word and action into maturity. It's not solely the role of the pastor or the minister of the church to teach. We're all ministers of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you're in the business of Christian maturity, not just for yourself, but for your brother and for your sister. That is what we're called to do here. So what are you doing to grow in Christian maturity so you might teach others? How seriously do you take that growth in Christian maturity that you might not able just to know stuff, but to actually help one another go forward? How much do you prioritize growing in your love and knowledge of this God and transferring that into how you live and how you live around others? That's why this thing that we're putting on in a couple of weeks, in that going deeper, it's a great thing to come to, to deepen your knowledge of God, to understand God's Word. What could be more important than to understand the message of the one who made you? the one who controls the future, and to understand why we trust the Word of God that way, I want to say, that's a great thing to come to. It's a great thing to be trained and equipped in. But what I want us to see here is it's this author's expectation that the normal maturing of the Christian means that that Christian will be teaching others. 
Not necessarily up the front, although it might be, but talking to others, letting God's Word dwell amongst you. And the question is, are we doing that? You know this kind of expectation isn't just from the book of Hebrews. You see it in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul talks about all the gifts. He talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. What are those? The ones that build up and encourage and teach the church. There's always an emphasis on building one another up. Now, the reason the author gives here for the recipients not being teachers is that they have been too lazy to bother understanding, too dull of hearing, too tired, too whatever. God's Word is asking me and it's asking you tonight, are you being lazy? Are you comfortably numb to the Word of God, not letting it mold and shape and change you? Are you leaving the Word of God that the writer of Hebrews describes as a double-edged sword that judges the ideas and thoughts of our heart? Are you leaving that in its sheath? Or are you letting it grow you and mature you? Now, if at this moment you're thinking, oh man, I'm so glad so-and-so's here to hear this. You know how sometimes you think that? You're like, they need to hear this Word. They need to know to keep growing as a Christian because, man, they're a shocker. I want to say, stop. The writer of Hebrews is saying it to you. If if you're sitting here thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here, because then they could hear it. Stop. Are you letting God's Word train and equip you? Are you comfortably numb or too lazy to come and be shaped by the Word of God? That's what we need to ask ourselves. That's what God is asking of you tonight. Now, He's not calling us to go around and be the laziness police. I'm not called round to go to everyone else and say, you're not listening! I can't listen, he's yelling in my ear. It's like, oh, what are you saying? Like, he's calling us to think through where we're at. And if you were to map out your week, if you were to look at your decisions and your priorities, you look how much attention you put into spiritual growth and training and maturing, how much would you have put in there? How much of your energy do you put there? I'm not even talking about how much time that we spend in that. Like for many of us, just spending some time in the Word, growing and maturing, setting some goals, working out the next step forward for my growth as a Christian would be a great head start. I think for many of us, we've got this tendency to equate spiritual growth with service at church. It's so easy to do. You know, I come to church every week. I slog my guts out every week. I work in the study and I kind of, I read passages, I look at languages, I, I read lots of people, what stuff, other one, what stuff other people have said and I try to make sense of it sometimes. And, you know, it, therefore, of course I'm growing. And we think service in the church means Christian growth. But are we letting God's Word shape and change us? Am I letting God's Word shape and change me? It can be so easy for me to start another sermon next Monday, tomorrow, open up a new passage and just forget what's gone past and not apply this call of saying, Rowan, are you spending time in the Word where God is shaping and changing you? Not where you're thinking about how does it hit others, but how does it hit you first? It's not saying we need to be more committed to church. It's saying we need to be more committed to Jesus and to letting Him shape and mold us, which, funnily enough, the author of Hebrews tells us comes as we meet together and encourage one another. So, how do we do it? How do we battle against laziness? Now, I want to flag at this point, this is going to get a bit messy. As we explain the answer to this kind of solution, or so the solution to this question that's raised by the passage, there's going to be all sorts of questions that come up because it's really quite confronting. We're going to spend some time after the talk tonight in, in questions. There should be a number on the screen. If you've got questions about any of this so far or anything that comes up, just text it in. And um, we'll spend 10 minutes at the end of of this talk thinking through how we can answer anything that I've missed or said that's dumb and kind of correct and get it clear across. But I want you to kind of really work hard at what God is going to say tonight. The question is, how do we stop this laziness? Now for me, I'm a perfectionist. I love doing things really, really well. I don't know if many of you are perfectionists. Often perfectionists struggle with something that everyone else sees as procrastination. Everyone goes, why aren't you just doing stuff? 
Uh, I struggle with that. There are times that I just, because I'm a f- perfectionist, I want to put all this effort and energy into stuff, and so I, I kind of don't get the stuff done that I need to do, and it can be last minute at times. And, you know, in, I talked to Sarah, who's just so ordered and organized. You know, and originally Sarah would used to just say to me, you know, why don't you just do it? Uh, why don't you just, if you ever say that to a perfectionist, it's really, really horrible. Because it's not like we're like, oh, I never thought of that. Like, why didn't I just do it in the first place? That would have been brilliant. You're like, no, I've been trying to do it. Of course I want to do it. That's why it's frustrating me. It's because I can't do it. And they're like, well, just do it. I'm like, here we go again. No, to actually work out why we act that way, we've got to understand what's going on underneath. Now, for perfectionists that procrastinate, what we do is we take a normal task. So say there's like a log on the ground here. Say it's a piece of, say it's a piece of wood as wide as this tile, right? So it's about a foot wide, 30 centimetres. There you go. And it goes for like, um, you know, just, just the other side of the room. And the task is, Rowan, you need to walk along this kind of plank here to, to over there. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. But because I'm a perfectionist, I go, this is the most important walk I'm ever going to do in my life. I need to make sure I do this really, really well and I don't fall off. And then I go, if I fall off, everyone will laugh at me, so I better get it right. And if other people laugh at me, well, man, what if I do it so well that I've got to do it as well next time I walk across this log? Man, do I really want to walk across this? Maybe I need to look on the internet and work out how to walk across this log. And so I research how to walk across logs. And you look at that and you've got to understand what type of wood it is and if there are any borers in it. And there's all sorts of stuff to know about this log to do it well. And what happens is then I'm just like, I, just, I can't do it. It's like taking this log and going, it's so important to walk across this perfectly that I'm going to take its importance and put it between 200-meter buildings up in the air. I'm going to say, there you go, that's how important it is. If you fall off this log, you die, Rowan. And then I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> There's too much pressure here. And so I've got to understand more and more and more. And so what perfectionists do is, and it's taken me a while to understand this, we, we turn around and we light a fire behind us in the building called time. And that fire burns towards us. And we're like, man, it's getting close. And we kind of read, we research, we do it. And then the fire gets right up here. And we're like, ah, and then you run across. And you get to the other side and you're like, whew, I did it. And you're like, I can do it again. And we just repeat that whole thing time and time again. We have this idea that um, we have a fear of we've got to do this perfectly. Um, so if you're a perfectionist, I hope that's helpful for you. The question is, what's the deal with laziness? How does laziness work? What's behind it that means that we, we're dull of hearing, dull of understanding, we don't want to know? Well, psychologically, the definition of, of, of a lazy person is this. A person is being lazy if they are able to carry out some activity that they ought to carry out, but are disinclined to do so because of the effort involved. Right, let me say it again. A person is being lazy if they are able to carry out some activity, so they're actually able to do it, and it's an activity that they ought to carry out, but they don't want to because they can't be bothered. Right? It's, it's like the sluggard who's so tired, he can't even lift the kind of his hand to his face, so he just plants his face in the bowl. It's like, it's like this, this, Proverbs is great for these images of what laziness is. But why do we do that? Why am I tempted to, to, to be lazy in my hearing and my understanding and my seeking to mature? Well, like most laziness, the reason we don't do it is because we think it's not actually going to make a difference. We think that the effort involved now is too painful, too, too exhausting to be able to get any sort of short-term return, and the, and the long-term return is, is so far away, it just becomes too hard. If I just had to press a button and a million dollars came out, I bet you I'd do it. Right? But if I had to press a button every day for a year to just get something that said it was going to be important, I reckon I'd be like, no, nah, I'm stuff that. You know, it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that big. And so what we actually need to do is to recognize the importance of why doing these things, doing this thing called listening, is important. Well, the author of Hebrews actually does this for us. He helps us in our laziness. He gives us the immediate reasons we need to endure at the task of Christian maturity over the long term. That's what I've called on your outlines, the motivation to change. And let me tell you, the motivation to change comes in two parts. You'll see them in your headings there. Number one, it is possible to fall away as a Christian. It is possible to fall away as a Christian. You can really and truly miss out on eternal salvation if you do not persevere. That's one motivation. The second that we'll get to is that those who trust in Jesus, God will preserve to the end. There's this fact that the God of the Bible will, will hold you for those 
who are fruitful in their response, um, you notice that God is at work in them, so they have assurance. They have trust that God will do what He says He will do. And He preserves them to the end through them trusting and persevering. Let's look at those two. That's what we'll spend the rest of our time on uh, tonight before we get to questions, is those two motivations to change. Hebrews 6 verse 1. Let's look at the first. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, as you first read that sentence, you're like, what? Let us, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. I thought repentance was pretty important. Of faith, I thought faith in God was pretty important. I thought that's one of the things we need to keep reminding one another of. About teaching about ritual washings, probably talking about some sort of baptism type ceremony and laying on of hands, the, the resurrection from the dead, that's important. And eternal judgment. Why is he saying to leave that stuff behind? Has he gone like crazy for a bit? I think the key is in verse 3, and it helps us to understand what he's saying. And we will do this if God permits. What are those things that he's talking about? Well, the Jews, they already had the basic message about the Messiah, remember? They knew a promised king was coming. They hadn't quite connected that he would be the high priest as well, or that he would be God the Son. There are a whole bit of things that they were understanding now about who this Messiah was, this promised king was. But they, the Jews, before Jesus, they talked about the foundation of repentance. Repentance was important for the Jews. Faith in God was important. Look at Abraham, Isaac, Jake, look at the people of the Old Testament. Faith was an important thing for the Jews. Ritual washings was something that they did, the, the cleansing of themselves often. Uh, laying on of hands again, it's part of that ritual um, system that was set up for the Jews. The resurrection of the dead. Well, remember, the Jews thought that people would rise from the dead. Uh, they knew about um, Lazarus would rising on the last day. Uh, but then Jesus rose him to life back there. And so resurrection was an expectation, not a huge one, but it was there. And eternal judgment, there's hints of that throughout. What I think is going on here is saying, the writer's not saying to walk away from the basics of Christianity. He's saying, but you need to move on from the background of your Judaism, expecting a Messiah. You need to move away from that to recognizing that the Messiah is here and letting it change your lives. Have you seen Jesus? Would you accept him as he really is? And so he says, and we'll do this if God permits. What do you mean if God permits? Is that just like a throwaway sentence? No, I think he's saying you'll be able to see the mystery that Paul talks about, that Jesus is the Messiah, only if God allows you to see it, only if God calls you to, 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 to himself. Now, that's what we keep seeing throughout the, the Bible. And so here the writer of Hebrews is saying, you'll be able to come to recognize him truly if God allows you. Why wouldn't God permit someone to go into maturity? Well, here there's a pretty scary reason why. Have a look at 6 verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who've fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the comfortably numb, the writer of Hebrews is saying it is possible for someone to have understood the things of the gospel, to understood Jesus is the Messiah, to be enlightened, to be there and seeing this knowledge poured out, to have really seen the identity of Jesus, to be a companion in the work of the Spirit. They might have been amongst the church, seeing God's Spirit pour out gifts and seeing people grow and they've experienced some of the joy of that. It is possible for someone who has looked and acted and talked and believed just like a follower of Jesus to fall away from salvation. And what's worse, it's possible to have rejected in such a way that it makes someone permanently culpable in the eyes of God. They cannot come back. Now, are these people that fall away Christians? Well, I want to say, they've got to look like them, right? They've been there as God's Spirit's done its work. They've been part of the church, probably served on ministry teams in the church. They've understood the reality of the gospel, yet they're walking away from Jesus' shows 
that they were not Christians. So we've got to read this part of Hebrews in light of what's gone beforehand. So let's go back to chapter 3 and see that a true Christian is someone who perseveres to the end. Have a look. Hebrews 3.12 Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. I think throughout the ages, we have taken this doctrine of Christian assurance, of the certainty that I'll be in Jesus. And we've applied it far too quickly to the person who becomes a Christian. We've said, if you trust in Jesus now, if you confess with your mouth, that you can be 100% certain that you will be saved. I say, no. God's word here is saying the key distinguishing factor of someone who is a Christian is perseverance. That they keep trusting in Jesus. You need to be in Jesus to the end in order for the benefits of Jesus to apply to you. What he's saying here, it's not just some random one-off thing either. If you remember the parable of the soils in Luke 8, Jesus told this parable and he's like, there are are four types of soil. Uh, There's a path, there's rocky ground, there's soil that's got thorns amongst it and there's this good ground. And the farmer goes out and and he spreads his seed on the same. It's, It's a good seed, the seed's good over all of them. The first one on the path, the seed gets eaten by birds. It never grows. That's talking about people who never actually become Christian sprouts. They never grow as Christians. The the word falls on their ears and they they walk away. Satan snatches it. The second one is talking about rocky ground, where there's rocks but there's dirt. And what we hear is these seeds, they actually sprung up. They were little seedlings. They started to grow, but then the sun came out and there wasn't much moisture, and so they withered at kind of just the baby stage. Then the third one is the one that's among thorns. There's a kind of a, a better ground, a good ground here, that, and this seed there grew, and, but it was choked by the thorns around it. I take it it grew for a little bit longer, but the thorns kind of wrapped it around and it died out. And then there's the fourth, the good ground, the good soil. And what distinguishes it? Jesus says it produced a crop. 100 times what was sown, it was fruitful. It persevered to the end. Now, I take it that that little seedling at day one looked exactly, that was on the rocky ground that later on perished, looked exactly like the little seedling at day one in this good soil, didn't it? Wouldn't it still have looked the same? And the one amongst the, the kind of thorns, they still would have looked similar, just with other weirdo guys next to it. And as you look further down the track, there would have been very much similarities that looked for all intents and purposes, like there was a real kind of tree or whatever the, the seed was growing here. Well, I take it that's what this passage is saying. There is a reality for someone who looks for all intents and purposes, like a follower of Jesus, to lose their salvation. In fact, the author of Hebrews gives a very similar illustration to that in, in chapter 6, verse 7. Have a look at it, it's on the screen. For, it's just a little bit different, so don't equate them. For the ground that has drunk in the rain that has often fallen on it and produces vegetation useful to those who cultivated it for, receives a blessing from God. Right? So there's, there's this ground, and the rain has come and gone on it, and it produces fruit, vegetation that was useful for what it had been cultivated for. It receives a blessing for God. You're like, great, it's exactly what it should do, brilliant. And then verse 8. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Fruitfulness and endurance are the key. It is possible for someone to show the signs of Christian life, to get it, to go along for a while, maybe a number of weeks, a number of months, even a number of years, looking like they're a Christian, but return to the old pattern of life. Slip back into that old way that they had before they came to Jesus, rejecting the Jesus they'd seen, knowing who he was, but saying, no, I think I'm just going to go back to that. Falling away from the taste that they had had. And I want you to hear the strength of this warning. For those, it is impossible for God to renew them to repentance. It is impossible for God to renew them to repentance. It's not difficult. 
It's not impossible with man, but possible with God. No, just as 6 verse 18 says it's impossible for God to lie, 10 verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, 10 verse 6 says it's impossible to please God apart from faith. It is impossible for God to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. Not because God can't, someone's got him in a hold and he can't do it. Something's not powerful enough to do it, it's that he won't do it. There is such a response to this God that means he will say enough is enough and he will not again grant the repentance that we need to come to him. God has stuck in the sand in front of all of us here in his word tonight, a big, fat, real sign. A sign that wakes us up out of our laziness right now. It says this, Do not walk away from Jesus. For you will be burned on the final day if you do that. It's kind of like those signs on cliffs. Have you ever been to big cliffs? They've often got signs nearby that say, Danger, cliff, do not come near. And and, and there's there's a real sign there. I've heeded them most of my life and it's paid off well for me. I'm still alive. But sometimes people don't do that. The sign is real. It's not there just to trick you, just to go, Ha ha, I got you. It was actually really fun over here, but you can't come. The sign is real. I spent probably two hours this week trying to find an appropriate video to show you tonight of someone falling off a cliff. They're out there on YouTube. You can go check this out. Don't do it now. But you can go and look at people who, seriously, who are taking photos and slip and fall and die. It's real. I wanted to show you so that we'd be sitting here going far out. I can't believe you did that. Why did you show me such a thing that someone actually died? I showed you because you can fall away from God. There's one there... um, that's kind of an artist's representation of what went on. There's, there's a family, um, two kids, five and six, um, tourists. The mum and dad are there. They, they come to this place. There's a fence. Fence has on it a sign, cliff, don't go over. But they're like, oh, we want to get a selfie because that's awesome, right? We've got to prove that we lived and we do that through selfies. So we jump over the fence and they say to their kids, you stay here where it's safe. We're just going over. We'll be fine. We won't fall. And they turn around and they take the shot and then slip and fall and die. Their kids are orphans. They fell from a cliff because the cliff is real. The sign is real. The writer of Hebrews is saying to you tonight, do not be lazy. Do not think you can just cruise along as as a Christian. It'll be all fine because, you know, you can't really fall. Don't let the assurance that comes from those who persevere mean you become a lazy Christian. There's another video of a Russian. I don't know if you've seen these Russian videos. Um... They're crazy. Right? If you're a Russian, come talk to me later. You're awesome. Right? But they kind of do this crazy stuff. And this guy is on the top of a 140-meter building. Okay, and on the building, there's like a little balcony that kind of goes out. It's just at the top. And there's like this, this kind of grid. that there, there's, there's holes of a meter apart. And there's like a meter, and then a bar, and then a meter, then a bar, and a meter, then a bar. And he's got a kind of helmet thing on. And he's just walking across. Like, if, dude, if you slip... You're going to fall 140 meters. How do you think that's going to turn out for you? And like, I'm watching, I like that kind of adrenaline stuff. Like I've done skydiving. I really enjoy canyoning and abseiling. Motorcycle riding, something I love being close and speed. I'm freaked out just watching it. I'm like, this thing makes me sick. I just, you're like, you could literally die. You were this close to the edge. Who would do that? Who would not spend their time understanding God through His Word. Who would muck around on the edge of Christianity going, I won't fall, it'll be fine. I'll tell you who. Those that fall away from Jesus. This is not a dress rehearsal. We're not just kind of saying this in this life to go, oh, you know, it's all right, you'll get another chance. We need to focus on growing in maturity it's why it's important to keep meeting together. That's what the, the writer says just after this, verse in, this, this passage in chapter 10. Uh, just, yeah, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. 10, 24, and 25. We need to keep encouraging one another because the cliff is real. But what about the idea of perseverance of the saints? What about those other passages we read throughout the Bible that seem to remind us that God does hold those who really trust in Him to the end and there's a, a certain hope? Passages that we love to quote to one another like Romans 8.38, it's on the screen. 
For I am persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or death, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are they saying there that God will hold those who trust in Him to the end? There is nothing that can overpower Jesus. There's no one stronger than Him. Hebrews itself does the same thing. Uh, 6 verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has done it all. He's, he, he's died in our place. He's the perfect high priest. He goes before God, right into God's presence. That is the hope and anchor for our souls, keeping us secure throughout life. The, does this passage just contradict those ones? Is that what's going on? How do we understand like, what's going on here? I want to say, no, it doesn't. The writer of Hebrews knows exactly about the assurance that we have because he quotes it in 6 verse 9, right here in our passage. Look at 6 verse 9. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of better things concerned with salvation. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of better things concerning salvation. The author here can be confident that those he's speaking to will be saved. But why is that? Why can he say that when he's just gone? The cliff's real. You need to hold on. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust. Again, he pins it on God. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continued to save them. Do you see what he's saying here? Their work is a fruitful crop. They have already shown that they trust what God has said and they are producing fruit. These ones he is writing to are fruitful and growing as Christians. They, they, the love they showed for God's name when they served the saints and you continue to serve them. James is right. Faith without works is dead. If you think that, yeah, yeah, you know, I trust in Jesus, but you don't live it out, you're kidding yourself. The writer of Hebrews is saying true faith evidences itself in work, evidences itself in fruitfulness. It's not saying that if you work enough, then you'll get into heaven. No, no, no. Our salvation is totally dependent on what Jesus has done at the cross. And us trusting in Him, in that salvation is applied to us if we are in Christ. But if you are in Christ... You're going to keep acting like that. You're going to keep letting God's Word mold you and shape you and grow you. You're going to serve His people, not in order to be saved, but because you're saved. So then, why tell us about the possibility of falling away? Like, what are you doing? Like, what, what, if, if, we can, if we can be sure for these guys, they're going to continue to the end. If He's so sure of that because of their fruitfulness that they've displayed already, why is He giving us this kind of big warning there? Why is he telling it to them? He's telling them because that is how God keeps his people to the end. That big, fat warning sign that says the cliff is real. Keep trusting me. Keep obeying my word. To the one who perseveres to the end is the one who God, God's word is recognized to be true and we act on it. We don't jump the fence. We don't dance around out on the ledge going, I'll be fine. You know, it'll be cool. It is God through the loving warning of this author telling us the cliff is real. Grow in your faith that he keeps us fruitful and persevering. You see it in verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Now we want each of you, you can hear him saying this, right? Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will become imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. The warning is real and it's effective. The assurance is there. How can I be sure I'll be saved? By heeding the warning. If you're like, oh, how do I know? If you've heard the warning, then listen to it and go there. I can be certain. By trusting in the God who permits us to go on to maturity. By Him holding us in Him. By using the very real warnings of Scripture. 
Diligence is the antidote to laziness. Diligence is the antidote to laziness. Diligence in applying the word. Diligence in maturing as as a Christian. Diligence in loving your brothers and sisters enough to turn up, to text one another, to care for one another, to see that the most important thing we can do on earth is to grow in our love and knowledge of God, for that is the only thing that will last for eternity. I think too often that we forget we are at war. We miss the urgency of the times. Our death and Jesus' return throughout the Bible are to be expected at any moment. We treat the Christian life so often, though, like some sort of cruise liner. This is awesome. I expect all the blessings of God. I'm going to sit on the deck and just shower in the cocktails and the food and the kind of... We're like, this is the life. It's taking me this cruise ship called Christianity. It's taking me to my eternal destination called heaven. And it's awesome. And we just think, I can just sit back and get fat and kind of blob, right? I think that's how we think often about the Christian life. Our comfort becomes our king. We make decisions that put comfort above God. But what the Bible holds is a very different picture. We're on a battleship called Jesus. We are at war. The enemy is Satan and he's prowling around, throwing lies at us, saying, go on, just go near the edge. It's fine for you to do that. Go and just, you know, hang out heaps with that person or date a non-Christian or get married to one. Or, you know, just, just prioritize your career for a while so you can get lots of money. And when you get lots of money, you can be generous to the church. That'll be great, right? It'll be awesome. And keeps lie after lie after lie keeps coming. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is what the Christian life's about. God's blessing me. But we're at war. It'd be crazy if you were in the middle of a war on a battleship. There's bullets flying left, right, and center to get your togs on, right? That's what we call them, like swimmers, but togs, is that right? Anyway, those things that you wear when you go in the water and have fun, them. Okay, it'd be crazy to chuck them on, to put your towel over your shoulder, grab your deck chair, kind of waltz up onto the deck of the battleship as bullets are going over and go, this is great. You know, you sit down in your deck chair going, I love this. I'm just going to sit here and relax and I'll be right because I'm on the ship called Jesus. Yet all the time, Satan is pulling us closer and closer to the edge. And we're willingly happy to sit there. All the time, there's people all around the ship floating, oblivious to the war that's going on, who need to be pulled out, who need to be reminded of who the true king is, and that the war has already been won, and that we need to keep enacting, trusting, growing in the one who we are in. Reminding the others on the ship we're at war caring for the others on the ship to make sure we stay on, to make sure we don't go up on deck and hang around on our deck chairs to say, keep growing in Jesus. Don't be lazy. Don't forget what is going on here. What an immense privilege we have to serve with the creator and sustainer of the universe, to bring God's blessing to the world, to enjoy life forever, forgiveness, the certain hope that comes from God holding us because of the effectiveness of Jesus What a privilege we have to be fruitful. I see more and more people come in. Don't disqualify yourself from the kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says, Be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Ask yourself tonight, what do I need to do? What is my next step to grow as a Christian? To train and equip those around me. To put... Jesus in the center of my life and be fruitful. What is your next step? Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you tonight for your word. We want to thank you for the shocking yet loving reminder that the cliff is real, that it is possible to not be grounded well enough that we endure. We ask tonight, Lord, that through this warning, you would hold us safe. That our hope, our assurance, our comfort would come from 
faithfully desiring to hear your word and to grow in you, to mature. We pray tonight, Lord, for those of us here who are considering who Jesus is and what he's done, that they would see clearly he is the only way. Lord, we ask, reveal yourself to us. And Father, put Jesus so front and center in our lives that we see that without him, there is nothing. Pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, a few questions. Um, So, number one, does Hebrews 6 include those who said their place, their trust in Jesus at some point? Doesn't mean you can lose your salvation as a Christian. It's a very chilling thought. Um, I take it that the people in this letter that he speaks to, those who've tasted the Spirit, who've been enlightened, look and appear and possibly even think they are Christians. I, I take it that's the reality. Now, as we get to the end, if they don't endure, if they don't persevere, only then can we say they weren't. We're, the writer of Hebrews is very careful not to say, you are not Christians, you and you and you and you. He doesn't do that. He says, it is possible to do this. But for you, because of what I've seen, I think you'll go on to it, but he reminds them of the possibility. And I think as, as Christians, that's what we need to do for those around us, pastorally, to care for them. Not to go, man, you're gone. You can't come back to repentance now. That's too bad. You're out. Staff talking to you anymore. I'm going to go and hang out over here with his other friends. No, it's to keep holding out the gospel to them. Um, how do I know? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, still, uh, I'm still thinking through this, so yeah, see what you think. Um, how do we know that I uh, can't come back to God? How do I know if I've done so wrong in terms of rejecting Jesus, knowing who he is, but rejecting him, that I can't come back? You won't come back. God will not grant you the repentance that he granted you in the first place, if that was actually called repentance. So I don't think we're put in the position of going, oh, I can't come from where I am right now. If you're seeing this warning and you're heeding this warning, it's a, it's a real thing. That you're like, well, listen and follow. But do hear the warning. There becomes a point where God says enough is enough. Who are those people? They're the ones who walk away and never come back. Where God says, I'm not going to grant this to you anymore. You've, 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 you've done it. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, we make sure we're sitting in Jesus. That we're trusting in Him to the end. Yeah, it is a chilling thought, and I think it's meant to be, to say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't get off this boat. Next question. What should we do if we realize that we might be falling away? (laughs) Get off the cliff. Seriously. Um, I look at this video of this guy on top of that building, kind of jumping and thinking, you're a fool. If he realizes that he might die, what's the best thing for him to do at that moment? Get off the building. Stop mucking around in the fringes of Christianity. Stop tempting fate. Stop going, oh, I could probably do this. It'll be fine. My assurance is all sorted. Stop it. And say, no, no, no. I need to put Jesus first. Not in order to gain my salvation, but to make sure I maintain in it. I keep trusting Jesus in it. I mean, do you really trust Jesus if you're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, thanks so much for saving me uh, and and telling me the best way to live, but um, I trust that you saved me, but I'm going to live a different way. I don't really care about the way you've said to live, and I'm not going to... You're actually showing that you're not taking him seriously. We flirt and muck around with so much sin. Stop it. Me too. I say this to myself. Have friends around you to say, hey, do, do you say to them, do you think that I'm probably doing something I shouldn't be here? And, ask, and if you're the friend that someone asks you that, tell them the truth. <laughs> don't pull out and be like, oh, it's probably okay. You know, it's fine. Just yeah, dangle over that cliff. You won't fall. The sign's not real. Uh, we should come back to Jesus. We should confess our sin. We should recognize that He is the one who is King and He's the great mediator between us and God, that He's entered into the, high, high, into the um, most holy place for us. And so at that point, we, we trust in Him. Come to Him and thank Him for your salvation and ask Him to keep putting Jesus first. That's what we do. That's the Christian life. Every time, he's to say, Lord, help me put you as my king. Um, next question. It's impossible for Christians who have fallen away to be renewed to repentance. Should we still pray for them and try to talk to them about Jesus? Similar question. Um, you don't know who they are, so yes. Only God knows who are the ones that won't persevere to the end. 
You don't know who they are. We are not called to be the, the reject uh, and impossible to renew to repentance police. That's not us. We're called to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what we do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what you need to do. Next question. What's the difference between struggling with sin and the apathy described in Hebrews? Yep. I, I think the kind of apathy that's there in Hebrews, this laziness of hearing, I, I think... These are people that have had explained to them and have understood that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're rejecting that. They've understood it. They've been around it. They've had little seedlings of growth. They've kind of, um, you know, maybe even been amongst it all. Uh, If you want to check it out later, uh, Acts chapter 8, Simon the Sorcerer. He's this guy who's around Peter and sees the Holy Spirit come down and, and he's there. He's like, this is amazing and seems to believe. He says he believes in God. He's amongst them. And then the apostles, they're doing all these acts of of miraculous acts by the Spirit and seeing awesome stuff happen. He's like, this is amazing. And then he sees other people get this Spirit of God and then be able to do these acts. And he's like, I want in. And he goes to Peter, he's like, tell me, how can I buy this ability to kind of give the Spirit to people? And you know what Peter says? To hell with you and your money. He literally says, your money will be destroyed with you. You can't get this. And he looked, he was, he was part of it, he was there, this is awesome. But then it showed that he didn't have it. And so what's happened is he's understood it, and then uh, church history tells us, if that's true, that he became a heretic. Peter said, you can repent now, but he didn't. He understood what he needed to do, but really he just wanted the power. He wanted the fame, he wanted the relationships, he wanted the bang and the pop and the sizzle. What's the difference between someone who's struggling with sin and the apathy described in Hebrews? If you're struggling with sin then you're hearing the warning. You're sitting there going, no, I need to come back to Jesus. I need to sort this out. I beg you, do that, if that's you tonight. If God, by His Spirit, is prompting you to say, deal with this particular sin, do not walk away from God's Spirit prompting you in that area. Go tell someone. Tell someone in your connect group, a friend that you came with, come chat to me or Lachlan or Go and talk about it and say, I'd love for you to, to pray for me in this. It's, it's no surprise you're a sinner. Shock. <laughs> That's all of us. John's expectation in 1 John is that we are sinners. If anyone says they are not a sinner, they lie and the truth is not in them. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. So confess your sin. The apathy in Hebrews is walking away from Jesus. Um, last question. In Hebrews 13 verse 5, God says, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How does this fit with the idea of people falling away? Yep, great question. I haven't looked at that verse to kind of see how it fits in. Um, What you've got to do is hold it with the warnings that are here. Uh, What I think Jesus says with the parable of the sowers is, they were never with him. Even though the seedling looked like it was a seedling, they were never actually there. And we don't know that right here and right now. We've got to trust the great assurance we get in Hebrews because of the great high priest, because of Jesus. He hasn't forsaken us. He's gone to the cross. He's sacrificed his own life for us so that we can be saved. But you walk away from that sacrifice, you walk away from God.